What you're listening to is the call of an Atlantic puffin, standing guard outside its burrow on the tiny island of Hernikin in the remote Rust archipelago of Arctic Norway. Where I'm sitting now, I can see puffins sitting on the water just outside of the island. Um, they're just rafting for, for a minute. There are some in the sky that are flying to the colony with fish in their beak for their chick. And then there are some standing just on land outside of the burrows having fed their chicks. So they are, they are really everywhere around me. Dr. Annette Fayette is a researcher with a special interest in seabird ecology, behaviour and conservation, working for the Norwegian Institute for Nature Research. When puffins fly in to feed their chick, you can usually see them circle the colonies a few times to find the best angle of landing. It's not so easy and it really depends on the wind conditions and also on whether they are predators waiting around. Often gulls uh, may try and steal their fish. So they have to be very quick when they go into the burrow. They'll do a few circles around and then when they decide to go in, they'll just go straight for the burrow and land as close as possible to the entrance as they can and rush in with the fish very quickly. But sometimes uh, they don't have such um, a gracious landing, so you'll see some um, hitting the ground a bit too hard or tumbling on one side. But they're usually pretty good at it and you'll see them disappear in the burrow instantly and they reappear maybe 30 seconds later without the fish which they have given to the chick. And once they don't have the fish anymore, they are uh, less of interest to the gulls. So they will just stand around on the rocks for sometimes several hours, socialising with their neighbours. That unmistakable call, used by pairs to signal to each other at their breeding sites and to communicate with their pufflings, yes, that really is the name given to baby puffins, is perhaps not the sound that one might expect a puffin to make. But then, this is a bird that makes a habit of defying expectations. They nest underground in burrows, which they excavate using their powerful feet. They spend the vast majority of their lives bobbing on the open ocean, only coming to land to nest during the summer months. They molt and regrow their feathers every year, as all birds do, but then go one better by molting and regrowing their oversized beaks too. The puffin must surely be one of the world's most engaging, unusual, and dare I say it, comical creatures. The puffin is inquisitive. That's a curious thing. If you go to the salt, it's a great place to seek puffins, or to Skellig Michael. They're very close. They look at you and you look at them. There's a relationship between you and them. That's not true of other seabirds. They seem to accept you. And you can go quite close to them, I think, anyway. I remember ringing puffins. I ringed puffins down on Puffin Island. And when we were sitting on the ledge with my filet net, the puffins would come to inspect me, in a sense. They'd fly close by. What is this fellow doing? What is his business here? That sort of thing. Puffins are clearly very special birds, capable of remarkable feats of endurance in extreme environments. But I'm fairly sure that's not the main reason that people love them so much. So what is it about puffins that warms our hearts? Zoologist Dr Richard Collins. They're the great showbiz bird, really. They are marvellous performers. Now, why do we like them so much? Well, we like things, I believe, that resemble us, things we can identify with. And the puffin, if you look at them, is very unlike other seabirds. Seabirds live in 
cold, austere, unfriendly places. We can't identify with them out in this cold wilderness of the oceans. But the puffin is a bit different. He has a bill that actually looks like a nose. And he's very colourful. So we can identify with him. He seems to look at you when you're on the slopes. It's cuddly. He's a cuddly sea parrot, as he's sometimes called. Now, the other thing he has is personality. He's very disarming in the way he goes on. No highfalutin, pompous stuff like albatrosses roaming the oceans and that kind of thing. And if you look at the name, it's, the Latin name is Fratercula which means little brother, which is very comforting and warm, I think. And no pretensions. He's not elegant. He hasn't got the elegance of a gannet, long and sleek. He's dumpy, fat, kind of middle-aged spread kind of a bird. And he lives in a cosy burrow. Uh, you know, he's not out on an austere ledge with the winds and waves spraying up on top of him. No, he, he lives in a cosy burrow that he rents from a rabbit, it always seems to me, but in the old days they would dig and scratch the burrow out and a group of puffins would gather all around them in a kind of a semicircle. I saw this happen looking at the fellow doing the digging. They wouldn't do any of the digging themselves. It seemed a kind of endearing, very human sort of thing to do. This is a very friendly, attractive little bird that is kind of one of us. There's no getting around it. Puffins are cute. Adorable even. As a result, from Maine to Nova Scotia, the Faroe Islands to Shetland, Spitsbergen to Brittany, wherever there are readily accessible puffin colonies, they have become magnets for tourists. Perhaps nowhere illustrates this better than the magnificent Cliffs of Moher in County Clare on Ireland's Atlantic seaboard, one of Ireland's most famous and most visited tourist attractions, and summer home to a large population of our most charismatic seabird, much to the delight of the numerous visitors. Sorry, can I uh, ask you something? I, uh, I'm from Holland. Uh, I'm looking for the papagai diker, we call it. We call it the puffin the here puffin. in Ireland, yes. yes. They were swimming in the sea, wasn't yes. it? Out at sea, yeah. There's a group out here, about ten, just out here in the water. Oh, yeah, I see them. Yeah. I see them, yeah. yeah. I, I take my binoculars. binoculars. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. The Cliffs of Moher are an astonishing sight. Anyone who has had the privilege of visiting this majestic west coast outpost, looming over the wild Atlantic as waves crash far below, understands immediately why they are such a draw for tourists, who flock there from all corners of the globe to experience their awe-inspiring rugged beauty. Now you're welcome to the Cliffs of Moher, and you've got a beautiful day for it, and uh, we've got quite a few people here today. Astonishing though the cliffs are in their own right, and they truly are a geological wonder to behold, for me, the bird life they support is the real attraction. The sights, sounds and, yes, smells of thousands of seabirds nesting cheek by jowl on the cliff faces and atop the sea stacks provide a true, almost overwhelming, multi-sensory experience. I was thrilled to have the opportunity to chat with local wildlife expert Tom Doherty, who has worked as a ranger at the Cliffs of Moher for the past 17 years. They come from every country and a lot of them are, they want to see the puffin. I imagine many people, when they see their first puffin, it must be quite an experience for them. What did they tell you about them? They get so excited when they see it. Like, when they come and uh, say, can we see puffins? And when you get them a pair of binoculars and point out where the puffins are, they are so excited. And it's a great feeling that they are so happy 
to be going away with that feeling like, you know, of having seen that first puffin. The tourists who visit the Cliffs of Moher call the puffins by many different names. Papageidiker in Dutch, Macaro in French, and Lundi in Icelandic. What's in a name? Well, the scientific name of the bird known in English as the puffin is perhaps the most evocative, Fraturcula arctica, which translates literally as little monk or little brother of the Arctic. A fitting moniker, in particular, for the puffins that call the ancient monastic settlement on Skellig Vahil home. In Irish, it's generally known as puffin, but it has other names too. I'm going to talk about on Thainbrach, the puffin, on Fwipin, the chicken of the sea, on Talbanok, on Patarua. There's all sorts of names for it, actually. Broadcaster, author and naturalist, Eina Nilana. Maybe you look at the proper bird books, they all have to put in the Irish word for it because they're, they're good at that. And when you go to the puffin, they all have puffin. So, well, the puffin is one of the words that they've done their duty. But when you scratch a little bit under the surface, there's actually loads of names for the puffin because, I mean, a bird like that would be known to everybody and that this really means then that you can get a proper Irish name for it. So on Blaskets, they used to call it whipping. And whipping was translated as chicken of the sea. So they must have been eating it as well if it was chicken of the sea. And then, of course, you have just that far from there in Kerry, you have Puffin Island. But when you look up Puffin Island in, in, in Dinian's great dictionary, it's Ilan the Conog. And Conog is a name for a puffin, he says, or indeed a sheer water rider. So they didn't discriminate. So when they look at the official bird books, they have the Conog as the sheer water. But it was actually also used for the puffin. So you move up along the coast then because coastal areas are where the puffin is found and of course that's where the Irish language is still to this day. And we've a new book out actually which is In the Ear Hooskert Here Cunnel and this is the birds of the northwest of Donegal. Not the whole of Donegal, not Ulster. <laughs> it's the northwest of Donegal written by Matthew O'Morocco. And this of course includes places like Torrey Island where as you know and everybody else knows there are no rats Column Kill made sure there weren't. And of course, rats are the deadly enemy of the puffin. So if there's no rats, there's lashings of puffins. So Matthew O'Moroku calls it on Thane Brack in his main heading to the article on the puffins. And on Thane Brack means the speckled bird, which seems a rather strange name for it. But that's what he has. And he gives no explanation as to why he calls it on Thane Brack. But when you go looking into it, then he has a whole load of words that they have for it as well. And one of them is Albanock. Now, Albanock is the Irish word for somebody from Scotland. So I rushed back to Dineen to see what he had to say about Albanock. And he says Albanock is also a name for puffin, probably because of its solemn expression and black drapery. But on Torrey anyway, they were very familiar with this. And they had this tradition that the puffins came back to the island, came back to where they nested on Good Friday to clear out their burrows. And then they went off to sea again and didn't come back until the end of May when they actually bred and nested. But they actually made a special journey on Good Friday. Now, mind you, Good Friday is not the same Friday every year. It depends on the lunar and it depends on Easter. But faithfully, they turned up on Good Friday to clear out the nests and then they came back on the end of Baltimore and the end of May to actually breed and build their nests. So when you could see them coming on Good Friday, and they all went out to look, obviously, it was nearly like a national holiday in the sense to go out and have a look at them. You saw them there and you knew then that summer was on the way. It is a story told in his book, Matthew, he says that these strangers had arrived on, on Torrey and they were walking along the road. Now remember we called it on Torrey, we were calling this on Pat the Rua, which is the red pet. So 
They're walking along the road and they meet these strangers and the stranger asks them, is there any Pata Albany around? Now, Pata Albany, Pata is the pet and Albany is the word. So anyway, these fellas knew that if, it was, if they were calling it a Pata Albany, as opposed to a Pata Rua, that they were Protestants. So even how you even spoke of the puffin, give away your religion, never mind anything else. So what's in the name? I'm telling you, there's lots in the name. Whatever you want to call them, puffins are utterly unmistakable. These diminutive seabirds, standing around 20 centimetres tall, look like nothing else that can be found in the natural world. Indeed, with their oversized multicoloured red, yellow and blue bills, clown-like faces and endearing waddling gait, they look more like soft toys, children's drawings or cartoon characters than real live birds. It's morning on Puffin Rock and our pufflings are up and raring to go. Look, Baba, Mossy said we're going to do something really exciting today. I can't wait to find out what it is. <laughs> Baba must have had some extra fish this morning. He's in a very playful mood. Mossy! Baba, Una, where have you been? We got here as fast as we could, Mossy. What are we going to do today? Today, we are going... On a food hunt! Yippee! Yay! As we've established, the puffin is known by many names. Papagayentauke to the Germans. Freilesio to the Spanish. Supapagai to the Danish. Or, to children around the world, Una, and not forgetting her little brother Baba, the stars of the animated phenomenon that is one of Ireland's greatest entertainment success stories, Puffin Rock. I think a puffin is particularly appealing. You know, they're very colourful. They've got cute little chicks and, of course, our little puffins. We have a very young chick in it and we have a little girl, Una, who is growing up and finding her way in the world. And I think um, puffins have a very interesting way of finding their way in the world. You know, they, they're very close to their parents, but then they also go out to sea and spend months at sea before coming back to land again. So I think that was very interesting, the thought that they spend this time and have this life on, on the island, but then they also go out to sea for months at a time. This acclaimed children's television series about an adorable pair of pufflings and their adventures is the creation of five-time Oscar-nominated Kilkenny-based animation studio Cartoon Saloon. Lorraine Lorden. They live kind of secretive lives. They spend a lot of time underground as well. They burrow and at the beginning of their lives, they spend a lot of time underground. Not a lot of people know that. So um, there's a lot to learn. And I think that's what makes it interesting as well, is that there's so much we think we know, you know, we're very familiar with what a puffin looks like, but actually we don't know very much about their lives. So I think that's part of the appeal. And of course, I think for Irish audiences, something that's really, really nice is that it's Irish voices and for us to, you know, have our kids watch something in our own accent is quite nice, you know. Una and Baba have now graduated to the big screen. Puff and Rock and the New Friends, the movie, was released in July 2023. Ooh, I've never seen so many puffins. Neither have I. There are puffins of all shapes and sizes from all over the world. It's like a big puffin party. Tufted puffins, horned puffins, and of course, Atlantic puffins. Here on Puffin Rock. Ah, that's a young tufted puffin. It looks like there might be a friend for Una in the new arrivals. Wow! 
You're really great at flying. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I'm Una, and this is Baba. <laughs> I'm Isabel, and this this is Phoenix. <gasps> Jeremy Purcell is the director, and Lorraine Lorden the assistant director of the new film. So when we were coming to making the movie, uh, one big thing that we wanted to look at was how do we turn a seven-minute episode from the TV series, which is so gentle and, and nice and lovely, about Una and Baba, into a 75-minute cinema-going experience that that's definitely worth going to the cinema for. So we, we talked a lot about how the story might evolve, and one of the ideas was about new characters coming to the island. So we have some new friends arriving, so Isabel, Marvin and Phoenix come. So Isabel is a, a Tufta Puffin, a young Tufta Puffin, whose home has been affected by a large storm and she can't live there anymore. So herself and her foster brother Phoenix come to live on Puffin Rock. And she finds it difficult to live there and come to terms with moving home and stuff. And our, our idea when we talked about it was Isabel is really just a 10-year-old kid who moves schools. It might be as simple as doing that or who has to move to a new city or who has to... And what would they go through and how would they feel about that? So she com- she's coming to terms with trying to move and leave home or what she perceives, what her island home, and come to a new place. And she has to learn how to make this new place a home for herself as well. I was delighted to see that the filmmakers have found such an effective way to introduce the threats posed to nature by climate change to the world of Puffin Rock and, by extension, to very young children. The message is very subtle, but it's there. And it definitely was in our minds as we were preparing the film. We really concentrated on the characters and what their journey was, but their journey started because of issues arising from climate change. Isabel's habitat is affected by climate change, it is affected by storms, the likes of that they haven't seen before, which we are experiencing in the world. So her journey starts with this, and it is alluded to, but it is a very gentle message. It is for kids, so we do think that the way that we talk about nature is maybe a little bit more subtle for children so that they are taking it in. They will definitely empathise with the situation of Isabel having to move home, but also that that's, you know, home is a safety net. So taking um, kids out of that and, and then seeing the struggle that another child is having, because that's, that's all our puffins are. They're just children really dealing with the problems of the world. In a very subtle way, they're taking in that message that we have a responsibility to other people and to the animals and to, to the world. So I hope that comes across in some small way. But the new Puffin Rock movie is not the first time that Irish Puffins have starred on the big screen. When the monastic ruins of Skellig Vihil were chosen, rather fittingly, as the location for Luke Skywalker's self-imposed exile in the most recent Star Wars trilogy, the Lucasfilm Disney production team was faced with a problem. There were puffins everywhere, continually wandering into shot. Rather than remove them in post-production, the easier and cheaper option was to use digital special effects to turn them into similarly adorable little flying creatures called porgs. Another iconic star of the silver screen was born. All thanks to the Puffin.
As we learned earlier from Puffin Rock and the New Friends, in addition to our Atlantic puffin, there are three other closely related puffin species, namely the horned puffin, the tufted puffin and the rhinoceros auklet. Though as these are all confined to the North Pacific Ocean, there's little risk of confusion with the puffins found in our part of the world. All of these puffin species live in very harsh and extreme environments, and all share some remarkable adaptations that make this possible. Biologist Terry Flanagan. They're not the only bird that can drink salt water, but it's some adaptation. Imagine you or I trying to drink salt water. You'd soon be throwing it up. They can dive down to 60 metres to catch their food. And when they're down there, they actually fly underwater. They use their wings to fly and they use their feet to steer. And the wings, puffins have to travel huge distances in search of food. And they beat their wings about 400 times a minute. Now you try that at home. Get out your stopwatch. See how many times you can flap your arms up and down in one minute. As Terry says, puffins must travel long distances from their nest sites in order to find food, up to 50 kilometres or more. It wouldn't make evolutionary sense for them merely to catch a single fish, fly all the way back to the nesting burrow to deposit it, then repeat the process. To avoid this, they've developed some remarkable adaptations to help them to carry as much sustenance as possible back to their hungry pufflings in one go. The most striking feature of the puffin has to be the beak. That beautiful coloured beak, those stripes on it, stand out in summertime. But it's also more important than that. Let me just explain it. If I go over here to the cutlery drawer and I take out a knife, and this here is a, this is a steak knife. And when you look at the steak knife, the steak knife is different to others because it's serrated. And so is the beak of the puffin. And the reason why it's serrated is that it allows the puffin to dive and to catch fish and not just catch the fish but also to hold them in their mouth when they continue to catch other fish. And it's not just the beak, it's also the tongue because the tongue is raspy and there's spines on the palate and this gets this grip on these fish. I'm told that the record is in excess of 60 prey items in its mouth and there it is flying 40 or 50 kilometres back to the nest. Well, that's some adaptation. The ocean is a big place. How do the puffins know exactly where to go to find food? Dr Stephen Newton is Senior Seabird Conservation Officer with Birdwatch Ireland. Well, I think it all depends on, on local availability and, and their own knowledge of what's going on. And there's always this case with colonial birds whereby they may follow each other. They, they watch birds coming back to a colony and those that are coming back with lots of big fish. They will be tracking the direction they're coming from. So they might say, when I next go out, I'm going to fly where that fella came from and we'll hopefully come across a prey aggregation that they can exploit. On the other hand, they might know their own best favourite patches and they must just go to those. And then if there's nothing there, then they might start following other birds. So this is an area where we're doing sort of lots of work and using lots of electronic tags to help us elucidate what goes on out there. But generally speaking, I would say they would forage within five to 40 kilometres of the colony, that sort of thing. They don't want to go too far because they've got to bring the fish back for their chicks. 
in doing that, sometimes they're vulnerable to, to what we call kleptoparasites. These are the skewers and seabirds like that, which would steal fish from them. So the longer they're flying with a fish in their beak, the more likely they are to lose it in effect. So they will try and forage as close to the colony as possible. And, you know, we always think the colonies are located in prey-rich areas anyway. But by and large, I would say five, 20, 40 kilometers, that sort of range, which it wouldn't take them that long to fly, but they're, they're going to bring in fish every few hours for their chicks during that stage of, of the breeding season. As Stephen Newton has highlighted, modern technology is revolutionizing our understanding of how puffins behave, as well as the threats that they face. On the Roost Archipelago in Arctic Norway, Dr. Annette Fayette is using GPS technology to track adult puffins to their feeding grounds. To study the feeding movements of puffins, I use uh, GPS technology, which is the same technology you might use on your phone uh, when, you, um, when you use uh, Google Maps, for example, to find out where you are. And these are very small. They weigh just a few grams. And we can put them on the leg or the back or the tail of a puffin. And they'll stay there for maybe a, a couple of weeks. And they record every five minutes or so the exact location of the bird. And so we can retrace its steps out at sea when it goes out to feed uh, for its chick. We, we're only tracking adults when we want to know where they feed because during the breeding season, the chick, the puffling, stays on the colony inside its burrow. That's why it's safe from predators. So it's the parents that have to go out to sea catch some fish and bring it back over and over again to the chick until it has grown enough that it can fly itself and leave the colony and goes uh, feeding for itself. So these are the movements I have been studying. Tools like GPS are helping to fill in the blanks in our knowledge, giving us a clearer picture of how the birds behave away from land. The first thing I found is that puffins can actually feed quite far from the colony. But the main interesting results that uh, we had is that this really differed between different colonies. So I have been tracking puffins in Wales, in the UK, where they were doing quite well. And I've also been tracking puffins in Norway, here on Rust, where I am at the moment, and in multiple colonies in Iceland as well. And what we found is on some colonies, puffins had to go and feed much, much further than on other colonies. And we found that this distance was actually linked with how well the puffin chicks were doing. And this makes complete sense. When the puffins have food nearby, they can do short trips to go and get food for the chick. And the chick can get fed very often and it grows well and survives. But on some colonies like Hurst, where I am now, the puffins have to feed much, much further away. And that means they can't come back and feed the chick as often. In the process, the parents also get very tired because they have to take these very long flights. And so what happens is that these chicks do not get enough food and they just can't grow and some of them don't make it and don't even survive until they leave the burrow. Now, this has an effect over time. If it happens just as a one-off, this may be less noticeable but because this has been happening over and over and over again for decades. This means that there are just fewer younger puffins in the population. And so the older puffins that die of old age do not get replaced. And so little by little, the population declines. So there has been a number of reasons, but we think what's happening right now in the last sort of 20 years where the puffins are really struggling to rear chicks 
is that they just don't have the food near the colony to feed the chicks properly. If you go to a colony where puffins are doing well, for example, the colony in Wales, uh, which was called Scoma Island, where another part of the study was done, you can see puffins in sort of June, July, coming back to the colony with really large beakfuls of uh, silvery fish. The favorite one over there is uh, the sand eel, but in other places they might eat herring, for example. But here on the rest, when you look around and you see the puffins coming back to their nest, they only have this really, really tiny fish, basically, which are so small that they won't represent a nutritious meal for a puffin. So what's happening is these puffins have to fly really far away to find food. And even the food that they find there is not good quality enough. And so the chicks just starve to death. And there's very, very few chicks which managed to leave the colony and, and join the breeding populations a, a few years later. And so little by little, the population is dwindling. Unfortunately, the decline is not confined to remote islands in Arctic Norway. Right across their breeding range, puffins are in trouble. Dr. Stephen Newton. The, the global picture is, is not great. So there's been declines just about everywhere across the puffins range. To the extent that the birds have become endangered on the, on the BirdLife International Global Endangerment Index, you know, the red listing and whatever, we have puffins red listed in Ireland and they are globally endangered as well. So the, there's a big problem with puffins and their prey possibly related climate fisheries lots of different factors but within Ireland definite decline a significant decline we census our birds across the island of Ireland every 15 to 20 years we did a big survey called CBA 2000 centered on the on the millennium we've recently completed a, a new iteration of this survey called Seabirds Count which most of the, the, the counting went on between 2015 and 2020. We're about to publish the results of that survey in, in, in a book later this year. But that has shown a significant decline. So they're in a pretty bad shape basically across the country. Virtually every colony has shown a significant decline between those two surveys. The only site where there's been a significant increase is Skellig Michael in Kerry where the birds have increased up to 6,800 pairs, which is significant, a 70% increase from the CBA 2000 count. But elsewhere, declines of between 20 and 90% at virtually all Irish colonies. So it's not good news. It seems that climate change is having a dramatic impact on the fish that puffins need, such as sand eels and young herring. These small fish feed on plankton, which in turn favour colder waters, which contain more oxygen. As sea temperatures increase, the plankton are moving ever further north. The fish follow suit, taking them out of range of the puffin colonies. Back in the 1950s in this area, there had been overfishing of some uh, species that the birds were feeding on, for example, herring, and the stocks collapsed. But this has now recovered, but there still hasn't been a really good herring year for the puffins in many years. And what we think is happening is the environmental conditions are changing. Now, fish are very sensitive to the conditions in the ocean, especially the forage fish, which means this little fish that most seabirds feed on. And basically, if there's a disruption, it could be temperature, for example, then this will affect the entire food chain. 
And as we know, the temperatures in the oceans are changing, but we also know the currents are changing. For example, the currents that used to bring the spawning herring close to these colonies are moving. And so this means that a resource, the herring or other fish in other places, that were once plentiful for the puffins to feed their chicks with, are now very scarce. So the puffins have to turn to other types of fish which are not as nutritious. But what can we do about it? Well, that's a very good question. <laughs> One of the obvious things to do is to try and reduce our carbon emissions and to stop at least the worsening effects of climate change as soon as we can. But this is something that has to happen at a very large scale level, um, not just individuals, but governments and, you know, across continents. And even then, this might stop what could become worse in the future, but we've already done a lot of damage, so there's already a lot of problems. What we can do at the same time is try and reduce other potential pressures on the birds. For example, this does not apply so much to puffins, but some birds are also suffering from um, the effect of bycatch in fisheries or um, habitat loss, invasive species on their colonies and so on. So we can also try and reduce other pressures they're facing to minimize the problems, if, if you see what I mean. Um, but it's it's a very tricky position and You know, it doesn't look very good for puffins in the future if things continue. How much for a ticket to the Westman Islands, please? It's 2,400 just the one way, so 4,800 for both ways. How long does the journey take? It takes around 40 minutes. That's great. I'll take a return ticket, please. All right. Uh, I just need your ID to put your name on the booking. It's early May, and I'm taking a ferry to Jaime, the largest of the Westman Islands, four nautical miles off the southwest coast of Iceland, where the puffin nesting season has just got underway. As at the Cliffs of Moher, both the geology and the bird life of the Westman Islands are huge tourist attractions, particularly during the puffin breeding season. I have visited Iceland many times and lived here in the 70s and I've never been to the Vestman Islands and they were actually still paying to recover the harbour after the volcano eruption when I lived here in the 70s so I've always had an interest and now I finally have the chance and so we're going over and we're taking the puffin tour while we're over here. In January 1973 Jaime was the scene of a cataclysmic event when without warning a massive volcanic eruption destroyed hundreds of homes and came perilously close to obliterating the island's harbour. A movie-termed camera crew presents these dramatic pictures of the volcano of Helgafell on the Westman Islands, dormant for nearly 7,000 years, now suddenly awakening into violent life. Black volcanic ash threatens to bury the main town on Jaime as they struggle to save some of the houses and fishing factories. The 5,000 inhabitants of the island were evacuated by fishing boats to the mainland within hours of the start of the eruption. James Watson is a Navy veteran who was posted at the former US Naval Air Station at Keflavik. This may be his first trip to the Westman Islands, but it's not the first time he's seen a puffin. The first time I went to Dirhole, which is an, a rock arch that extends off the southern coast, it's known for puffins, and we went walking up, and after we parked and were walking in, a young French girl came running over to us and said, oh, do you want to see a puffin? I can show you where there is one. And so we went with her and she said, okay, and we had to lay down on the ground and we had to crawl out on the edge to the cliff and look down and there was one sole puffin sitting there. And we took pictures and we were all very excited that we had pictures of a puffin. 
And when we were finally done, we stood up and we continued walking and we walked about 50 meters further and there must have been thousands of puffins in the cliffs. But we had our picture of one, so... And then we got pictures of lots more. And they're everywhere. That was in July. And so it was after most of the nesting was done. But if you're here in late May or June, they're nesting up there and it's all blocked off because you can't go and walk around up there and disturb them while we're nesting. So we were, we were very lucky that we were able to get in and see them at that time. And they're quite amazing. Beautiful birds. This time we'll be going up into the West Fjords and we will hopefully see them up in the West Fjords while we're up there too. I hope. Because it's always the high point of some of our visits here is to be able to see the puffins. They're so pretty and so industrious. Iceland is the puffin-watching capital of the world, home to 60% of the planet's Atlantic puffin population. The largest breeding colonies are found on the Westman Islands. Now, welcome to the Westman Islands. Erper, hello. How do you feel to be back home? How do you mean? Well, the place is named Westman Islands. Westman were Irish, and uh, it so happens that a group of slaves of, of the founder of Reykjavik, Inkolur Arnason, they rebelled, killed him, and fled here. And when they were caught cooking over there, they were all slayed, unfortunately for them. But, uh, but the, yeah, this is named after Irish. Direct translation. Well, on behalf of my countrymen, apologies for the killing of the founder of Reykjavik. <laughs> I hope you're going to let me go home today. <laughs> well, we will see later. Dr. Erper Hansen is a biologist and seabird specialist based at the South Iceland Nature Research Centre on Jaime. He is part of an international team of researchers studying and comparing the feeding behaviour of puffin populations in Wales, Norway and Iceland. Puffins can be roughly split into five major populations and Iceland is the number one in, in size. I'm talking about size-wise. Second is Norway and so on. We have about 2.7 million burrows and we are close to the final figure. That corresponds roughly to 10 million individuals. But uh, there have been two massive declines uh, in the last decades since 1995. Uh, late 90s was one and, and we lost about 50% of the immature population. And then another one still ongoing, although it's improving. 2003 to 2015 or so, we lost another 40%. So overall and all, given all the age groups, this is the total population, we have had 70% decline, probably more. It's not final calculations, it's still sort of on the drawing table. But uh, in other words, a massive decline in Icelandic puffins. Still, after all these uh, declines, it's still the most common bird in Iceland. Uh, and, and it's... Uh, People can't tell unless they've seen the cliffs in, in the 80s when they were... And there's film of that, fortunately, where they are so packed that they're covered with birds. And when you see the same places now, it's uh, striking, to say the least. There's some quite serious declines that you're mentioning there. What's been causing that? Two things. Uh, one is basically uh, food supply in the wintering area which is fairly recently discovered by using these geolocators. We put them on, on them and we are partaking in a very large collaborative program called SeaTrack. We people can actually go online and, and look for SeaTrack.no. And we just discovered a massive uh, wintering area there for multiple species, uh, sort of hotspot, and millions of seabirds uh, sort of general population sizes rely on, on this tough period in, in their, uh, in their uh, life cycle in, in, in terms of low food supply in winter, basically. It's plenty in this area, but that has reduced dramatically now in the 90s, and our puffin populations followed suit. 
And a more recent one is a local one, Blake Rising, mainly the south and a little bit less the, the west. And that is a different timing of the ecosystem sort of dynamics in, in, in spring. And in summary, it's basically killing off all the little fish fry and, and hence the chicks don't have anything to eat. And we've been very poor chick production for almost two decades now. So that is the, the newer version, and that is caused by an interplay of factors. One certainly seems to be decline, 25% decline of a nutrient, silicate, which is a very low levels here in the first place. And then also uh, temperature is, is seems to be uh, also playing a role, but we are, we are currently modeling that situation. It's causing uh, their the breeding season to delay by 17 days, and it's uh, just unheard of. So the mortality is highest among the younger birds. The more the adults are surviving, is that right? It, no, yeah, it looks like the younger birds, the first year of their life is their toughest. They are unexperienced and so on. And also we know that in these poor years they are lighter. And uh, it matters immensely if just 10... 20 grams heavier or lighter, uh, heavy cohorts or year classes have up to five times more survival probability than the lighter ones. But also when you have a food supply reduction of half, then you basically are weeping out all the young birds more or less. It's a massive uh, decline in the winter situation. But in, in the summer situation, you have basically the chicks don't uh, fletch they they will die or even in worst case scenarios they abandon the eggs that's uh, happens uh, also and uh, what we are seeing is is that uh, many in many years here only half of the birds or, or so roughly around that are breeding a lot of them are actually skipping breeding and i think what's going on is that they gauge very well the abundance of of, of food and when the food is delayed uh, and these uh, critters they eat, they just don't multiply until there's plenty of uh, plankton and, and everything in full swing in the sea. The later this is, the, the less likely they seem to be getting to physical breeding condition. And, and they will just, just abandon. I think that's what happens here. And we see a very strong correlation between lateness and burrow occupancy, or how many attempt to breed. It's shocking to think that these iconic birds are in such steep decline. I was keen to find out more about their fortunes closer to home. Marine biologist Dr. Mark Jessup is a lecturer in zoology at the School of Biological Earth and Environmental Science at University College Cork. We've actually found that the Irish puffins travel a very large distance. We hadn't really anticipated this based on other studies that were done in, say, the UK. Um, many of the puffins that we've tracked from the colonies in Ireland have, have made a beeline right the way across the Atlantic, um, around about to the, the Labrador Shelf off the coast of Canada. And then they've spent the majority of their winter towards the southern tip of Greenland in the middle of the Atlantic over winter. So when we compare this to, to colony data from a range of other colonies around the, the breeding distribution as far up as Norway, Irish puffins are actually undertaking one of the sort of the longest migrations over that winter period. As elsewhere, Irish puffin populations are in decline. But there is hope. Puffins are red-listed in Europe, so they're an endangered species uh, because they have been declining across their range. We've got very half-decent populations in Ireland and quite healthy populations in some areas. So the productivity monitoring that's been going on in places like the Skellig Islands 
indicate that we've actually got quite good breeding success there. So that population seems to be increasing. Unfortunately, puffins are a very difficult species to monitor because they live in burrows and trying to access burrows to find out whether there's a puffin living in that burrow or a Manx shearwater or a rabbit or any other animal is quite difficult. So it relies on playing calls down the burrows and seeing if a bird responds or shoving your arm down a burrow and seeing if there's anybody home. Um, but that's quite difficult to do when you're on very, very steep, rocky and cliff-like islands. So it's very hard to, to get a really good estimate of how many we are to know whether those populations are stable or, or decreasing. Um, I'm hopeful that puffins are going to do better than they have in recent years simply because of things like eradication programs for rats that are, are an invasive species and a predator of puffins. So once we get rid of those on some of the breeding colonies, they're likely to have increased breeding success, and that means increased juvenile recruitment to the population and an increase in population. So I'm very hopeful for Irish puffins, but I certainly wouldn't take it for granted. There's a lot of work that does need to be done to ensure their conservation status. There's clearly enormous affection for puffins. But will this affection lead to the species' protection? There's no shying away from the fact that the puffins' long-term future doesn't look terribly rosy at present. I've often said that if puffins didn't exist, conservation organisations such as Birdwatch Ireland would have to invent them. They're the perfect ambassadors for the natural world. Living, breathing, waddling, flying, belly-flopping adverts for the sheer beauty and wonder of nature easily able to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with snow leopards, polar bears, golden eagles and fellow iconic poster animals for the environment. If, as a society, we can't motivate ourselves to save the puffin, the adorable, beloved, charismatic puffin, what will we be persuaded to save? But I believe we're up to the challenge. The puffin is literally irreplaceable. To lose it would be unthinkable. So, let's not think it. Instead, let's take our cue from our little brother of the Arctic, which pushes itself to extreme lengths in order to survive and routinely overcomes challenges that seem insurmountable, making dramatic changes to its lifestyle to prevent disaster. If the puffin can do it, so can we. Oh, oh.